You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Shareability, a social content company that makes videos people actually want to watch. They work with brands and influencers to create content that explodes across the web through social sharing and organic discovery. For years, Shareability has been topping the charts with crowd-captivating videos for brands like Pepsi, Pizza Hut, Sony Entertainment, and Cristiano Ronaldo's Rock, delivering over a billion views, 5 million shares, and 50,000 press mentions. Check out some examples of their work on shareability.com. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Jennifer Perry, Vice President of the Univision Creator Network. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited we get to do this. I want to start by talking a little bit about the early days of your career, because you started at such a defining company for the early online video space, and that was Current TV. Mm -hmm. So for those who aren't familiar, tell us a bit more about the Current TV experience. It's so funny because I really do think of my days at Current TV and my time there almost as my graduate program. Like I finished my undergraduate program in college and then went straight into Current TV. And it was a startup started by Al Gore, who at the time was sort of writing really high from The Inconvenient Truth, which had just sort of hit the few years before. So he had a really great name. He had a really great cause behind him in terms of trying to make some changes in the world. I think after losing the the presidency, I think he was probably soul searching. And these are some of the things he decided to spend his time on, Inconvenient Truth and Current TV. And I think for Current TV, my understanding from the very early on was that this was an opportunity to democratize media, that the internet was opening the doors to creators and viewers that maybe you couldn't get through traditional television. So I think everyone who came in to Current TV, we weren't there just to make content. We were there on a personal level trying to figure out what does the future look like. So anyway, this being my graduate program, I also refer to it as my fraternity. So, so many people came from that space and have now moved on to YouTube and digital and are doing incredible things. People have launched companies. They're running major divisions within media companies. So it's a really cool network to have been affiliated with. And I'm really proud of the work that we did there because I do think it was too soon for its time. But again, great learning experience, great people. And I think we all walked away with sort of that foundation of what the future could look like. Definitely. What was it like working with Al Gore? Oh my gosh. You know, it's really funny. He actually was super nice and down to earth. I remember being an assistant and I was actually at that time an assistant for Ezra Cooperstein, who we all know went and did great things with Maker Studios and full screen. But I remember being an assistant, just clicking away at a video. I One of my jobs was we had a network of hundreds of video producers from across the globe who would submit content to us that we would try to put to air. So it's sort of a very initial beginnings of what you see now in the MCN world. We were trying to do something similar there at Current TV. And I remember ingesting a video and somebody behind me saying, what's that there that you're looking at? And it was Al Gore looking over my shoulder at my computer screen. And I just was like, oh my God, it's Al Gore. (laughs) But he really was somebody who would pop in occasionally and just see what's going on. I will admit he wasn't there as much for the day-to-day, and I believe the reason he did that was because if he did, I think he was concerned with we would be viewed as a biased media company, which he never wanted to do that. He really wanted it to be 
for and by the team, the people, the creators. So he tried not to insert himself too much, but he was a great supporter and he would come to our company holiday parties. I remember one year we had a party on a boat. I think it was the two-year anniversary. I've heard about this party on the boat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Al loves a karaoke, that I will say. And he was there with Tipper. They gave us all books. He personally signed every single book. Amazing. And I think the other unsung hero of that company was Joel Hyatt, who was his business partner. And he was somebody who definitely was there every single day. He was there every single day. And again, he was somebody who would go and speak from everyone to the president of programming down to a lowly assistant like me. I mean, he really knew everyone's name, talked to everyone, was excited, enthusiastic, and really brought this amazing energy to the team. And for me, that was one of my first mentors where I really looked up to him and said, whoa, that's really amazing that he knows my name and he's interested in what I'm doing. And I think that brought a lot of motivation. That sort of like extra pep in my stuff and everything I did, because I was like, you know what? Joel Hyatt cares, so I should care. So I think in terms of leadership, he was a great mentor for me and just somebody I looked up to. Amazing. So you said in many ways, Current TV was ahead of its time. I think Mm -hmm. that's very true. Mm -hmm. But it was ultimately sold to Al Jazeera in 2013. You left before that in something else in the digital media space. So tell us about that move and that transition. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And by the way, this feels like lifetimes ago, but I think it was maybe eight years ago. But again, feels like lifetimes in this space. Obviously, there was a really close-knit crew of people from Current. We still have a Facebook group that many of us are a part of, a secret Facebook group. It's not that secret, just, you know, a group of friends on a a Facebook page. A friend reached out to me and said, hey, what are you up to? What are you doing? Because at that point, I think the writing was kind of on the wall at Current TV. I had been there for over four and a half years. I'd worked my way up from being a production assistant to production coordinator to production manager for an Emmy-nominated, Peabody award-winning documentary show that was airing in five countries across the globe. So I really think I had sucked up as much experience as I could from that. You know, I was interested in seeing what people in my network were doing. And this friend said, hey, you know, do you remember this person we used to work with? She's doing this cool stuff with YouTube. Her boyfriend's really famous on YouTube. (laughs) I'm like, well, what does that mean? Like, does he have a viral video? And he said, no, every video he puts out gets a million views. And that sounded sort of unheard of. And from being in a network that had a very, very nice budget and knowing what it was like to fight for views, both on digital and on linear, and to hear that some kid out of his apartment was getting a million views a week, I just knew immediately this was something interesting. So I played hooky. Sorry, Joel. I played hooky for a day. I called in sick. And I went and spent some time with my former colleague and in their apartment. And that day they got an email from Disney directly into their inbox saying, hey, we have this new game coming out. It's called Epic Mickey. How do we get this game into your video? And that's the day that I decided I was gonna quit my job. Wow. Just because I thought we have this massive sales team at Current, we're fighting for views. Here's this guy who's incredibly talented. He could be a commercial director one day. I mean, he was, it was Joe Penna. That's right, Mystery um, Guitar Man. Mystery Guitar Man. Yep. And I thought he's incredibly talented and nobody knows about him yet. There are no gatekeepers. There's no agents. There are no managers. There's no production companies. It's this genius in his bedroom who now has Disney knocking on his door. And, you know, I thought based on my background, I had worked with shoestring budgets. I had worked with networks of what we called sort of amateur producers or up and coming producers. So I knew how to work with creative people who maybe didn't have experience in sort of traditional media who are still great storytellers. 
I'd worked on the corporate side with sales teams and executives. So I felt like, you know what? I think I could do something here. I think I could add value. And so I quit my job and uh, started working with Joe and Sarah out of their apartment. From that, we birthed a management company and that became Big Frame. But I remember from very early on, for me, the whole reason I had wanted to be a part of Current TV was because, again, the democratization of media. And on a personal level, I really thought that the internet was a great place for women to redefine what we wanted to look like in media for, you know, Hispanics and Latinos and people of color. There's just so many opportunities for us to redefine those images. So on a personal level, I thought I want to make sure that I'm looking for that type of talent. So three people assigned first was Tayson Day, who back then was still sort of like the godfather of a YouTube. He had that hit video. I don't know if you remember Chocolate Rain. <laughs> And he had done that huge deal with Dr. Pepper. I knew who he was and I, I saw him at an event and I went up to him and said, hey, I know you don't know who I am. I'm a huge fan. Do you have representation? He said, no. And that's where that started. Signed him. The very next person was somebody named Jenna Marbles who had a viral video. And I remember looking on Facebook and I saw a friend had shared one of her videos. And at that time I thought, whoa, for this person outside of media, this person's like a nurse to be sharing this video, there must be something special about it. And I looked and it was Jenna and it was one of her first videos. I think it's the one where how to scare guys away at the club or something. And again, I literally sent her a message in her inbox on YouTube and she responded, signed her. And then super ego, Eric Ochoa, who is somebody I still work with till this day here at Univision was the third person I signed. Cause then I thought, okay, I have my marching orders. I'm invested. And Mike Diva was another person we signed. So I felt really excited about the people I was working with. I felt like this is the future and it's not just a job to me. This is something that I feel like I want to invest in on a personal level. How did you figure out the whole representation industry, right? You had yeah. come from a production background. Now you're in the world of we're going to help talent activate the next step in their mm -hmm. careers. How did you get a foundation for how can we help these people? I will be honest. Part of it was just instinct. I mean, I think when I was working at Current TV, we did have a budget, but they were still shoestring budgets and we had to do a lot with what we were given. So as a production manager, I was overseeing the budgets for the shows, allocating resources, communicating with marketing and managing talent. So all of our journalists and reporters, I would help with things like booking their travel, making sure they were where they needed to be, asking questions, working with the marketing team of, hey, so if we're going to do the shoot, what do we want them to look like? How do they prepare? I had worked with branded integrations before. So I did have some basic experience because you had to wear multiple hats at a place like Current. So I kind of had the best of both worlds already going in. And part of it was just instinct. You get 20 emails and you have to pick five of the 20 opportunities. So I would say, hey, if we only can pick five because you only have time, we should up your rate. So it's just sort of like a little bit of instinct. But I also did have a good foundation to kind of make some assumptions and guesses and test based on that. And so was most of the business at that point inbound that the brands were realizing the power of these emerging YouTube talent because it's kind of a YouTube only universe at that time. Yes. Huh. Oh, for sure. And that's sort of what was the interesting part was because at that time, I do feel on a personal level, I did add a lot of value because what was happening is there were some influencers where I remember Red Bull, <laughs> Red Bull would say, hey, we're going to give you a lifetime supply of, of Red Bull if you make a video. And people would be like, that's amazing. And my response like, was, hold on, oh, how much Red Bull can you minute, actually drink before your heart stops? <laughs> yeah, and not only that, but I'm like, this kid gets 500,000 eyeballs. 
exactly. Let's talk money here. The equivalent of that in the traditional paid advertising world is yes. X. So let's talk about you know, yeah. how do you get a fair rate for your work? I think at that time, a lot of people took those type of deals. I would step in and say, is it worth it? Is it worth diluting your brand to push this product where you're not even getting paid for it? Think about it. And by the way, I was always of the thought or of the mind that I'm never going to tell my talent what to do, but I want to give them options and have them think critically and make their own decisions because at the end of the day, it's their brands. But, you know, my recommendation would usually be, they're not going to pay you. I'll pass. That's what I would do. Yeah. Um, And were you also approaching brands at the time, pitching these emerging stars? Yes and no. I personally didn't have those relationships, but what usually happened was somebody would reach out to us. They would want talent. Talent really didn't fit. We would then start building a relationship by saying, hey, that talent's not available, but here's 10 other people you can choose from. Next thing you know, that agency starts calling us all the time, not really looking for specific talent, but looking for an influencer or a digital viral video. So then we started to build relationships with those agencies. So just to set the stage again for people, this is 2010. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. You're with Joe and who would become his future wife, Sarah yeah. Penna. Yeah. And the business that you started was originally called The Cloud. Oh my God. Right? How do you know this, so, by the way? Oh, I know a lot of the inside <laughs> baseball about this stuff. Um, in fact, Sarah was a guest on the podcast. We oh talked a lot about the Al Gore boat story and some of the early oh days of God. the cloud and what became Big Frame. Yeah. So when did the name change happen and what caused kind of the next step in the growth of the business? Gosh, I think it's just one of those things that I wish I would have written in a journal what happened because there were so many moving pieces. Honestly, from what I remember, and I think, again, there's always like, there's probably five different stories and the truth is somewhere in the middle of how it actually happened. But from what I remember, we started seeing what was happening with Maker. Full screen had launched and we saw that they were scaling really, really quickly. And my heart was in management and working with talent and honestly, protecting talent. I really felt like this calling of, hey, I don't want them being taken advantage of. So for me, the scale business wasn't something I had thought about in part because I kind of fell into this. I never was somebody who thought, I want to start a business. I want to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be like a storyteller. I wanted to make documentaries. I wanted to be a news reporter. I mean, that's what I wanted to do originally. So that wasn't my initial instinct. It was just like, hey, okay, well, what does scaling mean? How do we service talent if we're scaling what we do? I mean, those are the questions I was asking where I think on the business end, What a business person might ask is, how do you get there? We'll figure it out when we get there. So I think the idea was, this is a huge opportunity. This could be more than a management company. What does that mean? And obviously at that time, we started getting lots of phone calls, interests from people with executive backgrounds, investors. You could feel the buzz and the energy and that there was something there. It made sense ultimately. It's sort of the way everything was moving at that time. We also were in conversations with YouTube to get one of the original deals. So all the stars were sort of aligning for us to evolve from being just a management company. So then we decided to make it a MCN, I guess. At that time, I don't think we even called it an MCN. For me, I was really reluctant. I went along with it because I do think that Sarah and Joe were the heart of the company. So I wanted to obviously support them. But at the end of the day, my heart was still in management. So obviously supported and helped the transition. At that time, I didn't think the MCN play was something that I felt behind. Obviously, now we're having worked at five different MCNs. <laughs> it's a different story. It's a different story. Yeah. But it and was it, very nascent at the time. At the time. Yeah. And it also just was something that just, it just passion wise, it wasn't something that I thought I would want to do. Sure. 
So you ended up leaving Big Frame after a little over a year, but yeah. actually stayed on the talent management side yes. and doing that collective digital studio. Yeah. Well, I actually had some time in between where I was just independently managing Jenna because Jenna had become a behemoth in herself and required that level. She basically needed a team. So I just spent some time working with her, figuring out what it is she wanted to do. We literally took meetings with everyone in town from Howie Mandel to CBS to Nick Cannon. I mean, we were having crazy meetings, book deals, clothing lines, makeup. I mean, Jenna was the queen of YouTube and I still think she is, by the way. So that was sort of a fun time just because I literally met everybody. And are you and Jenna still close? Yes. I mean, I wouldn't say we're like BFFs because it was a business relationship, but Till this day, whenever I see her at VidCon or anywhere, we give each other huge hugs. And we're like, how are you? Oh, my God. Because we did get to know each other so well. Our dogs became little dog friends. That's awesome. So, yeah, I mean, I think I'm really happy for her. I think she's doing what makes her happy. And I think that's ultimately all I would want for her. That's great. So how was your experience as an independent town manager? And why did you choose to go back into a big corporate environment? I think at that time, I was still searching for what it is that I wanted to do. It is tough to be independent just because there are so many unknowns. There were so many things changing quickly at that time. I don't think at that time I thought I was going to be a talent manager. This is what I was going to do. I just thought, okay, well, I'm going to work with Jenna, help her build her brand, and then figure out what I'm going to do next. I might turn in, I don't, if one of these shows get picked up, I might become a producer for a show. I might help be a brand manager. I don't really know where this is going to go. I was just still sort of open-minded. But again, when you start meeting a ton of people and your network grows, and I saw what the Collective Digital Studio was doing, they were working with Lucas Krushank at that time, and they had a TV show with him. And um, Lucas is, uh, refresh Fred. my memory, Fred, that's right. Yeah, Fred, right. This, yeah, huge early YouTube sensation. Yes. Yeah. You know, and at that time, I thought, whoa, these guys really know what they're doing. They're creating major IP. They launched a movie. They launched Fred, a movie. A film. And I thought, I want to learn from them. This is amazing what they're doing. And I was really impressed. And I met Dan and Reza. And I thought that they were great. And Michael Green at the time who was there. So I thought I can learn a lot from them. I'm very interested in working with them. So it was more about them and their company and what they were doing. I thought they were ahead of the curve from any other management company. At that time, they were still traditional. That's right. Because they're all pretty traditional Hollywood guys. Yes. so So how did you kind of bring your new media expertise to the fore with them? That's really funny. So I feel like at that time, I was still trying to maybe work more on the management side, but I felt like MCNs were following me. So I tried to do the management at Big Frame and that turned into more of an MCN. And then same thing with the collective, it started to transition into an MCN. So then again, I was like, oh man, this is like not what my heart and soul is. Is this what I want to do? But yeah, I mean, I think in the very beginning, we had a great roster of talent and we were just trying to build IP. I was sitting in meetings with talent managers that represented actors and writers. So I really was trying to learn more about, hey, if there's an influencer that wants to be on TV, what does that look like? What type of things do they need to do? What are those auditions look like? So for me, it was very fascinating to sort of see how can we bring these two worlds closer together? Because at that time, I felt like Collective Digital Studio was really the only one who was doing that. And still do, I think. Yeah. You know, the now as Studio 71, post Proceban acquisition, yeah. you know, to their credit, they've done a good job of marrying these two worlds. And yes. I think they were the first to recognize that online video and digital media in general created a path to monetize much closer direct to consumer. Yes. Right. So they were doing comedy specials with Cat Williams that they would go and sell yes. direct to his fans, right? And then they did the same thing with building 
merch lines and creating the joking hazard board game, right? All these yeah. very creative ways of monetizing a talent's special gifts in the traditional online world, but certainly offline as well. Yes, agreed. And I remember the Cat Williams story, Michael Green, I think was one of my first meetings with him. He told me that story and I thought he really gets it. Do you think that other management companies and kind of the next generation or the MCNs that followed that had a bit of the talent DNA, maybe perhaps not as much as say a big frame or Studio 71 mm-hmm. collective digital studio. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they learn from those examples of people taking an emerging creator and helping them build their business 360 degrees? I mean, I think you have some success stories. Like I know you had Scott Fisher on your last podcast and I think their team is a great example of, you know, I have nothing but great things to say about Scott. He has great instincts. He has a great pool of talent. They're really thinking about the business. I feel like in general, that's such a hard question to answer because there's a lot of companies that popped up, right? And there were a lot of people who said they were managers or agents. At one point, I would work with talent and they would have six managers. And I thought, but who's really your manager? (laughs) What does that mean? In general, yes, I think there's a lot of great success stories, but there are some people who were just reactive, meaning they would come in, they would get an email and they would respond and that would be it. And they refer to themselves as managers. And I thought- they're acting more as an agent and just trying to shop opportunities and not thinking about the longevity of the talent and helping them plan their career. Correct. Yes and no. I think there's some really great examples out there. I also think that there are some groups that are just want to build a massive roster. And then the question becomes, what type of value are they really adding? Is it worth signing? What does affiliating with that group mean? I always think about that. I don't think I have a clear answer just because I think you can see it on both sides. Yeah. And your heart was really in working with talent and helping them think strategically about their careers. So again, you leave CDS because they head in the direction of becoming an MCN, thinking about Mm -hmm. a bigger level of scale, and you go independent again. So tell us about the next three and a half years as a consultant. Sometimes all these different, I always call them lifetimes, they all sort of gray and blend. I'm like, what did I do? I actually started doing some consulting work. I did some work with Nickelodeon. They were trying to launch a show like at the 8 p.m. hour, geared more towards teens. So I did some digital work with them, creating digital content. I also consulted with Teesmade and worked with them, trying to develop their MCN because at that point I was like, the MCN thing's not going away. I'm really great at working with talent. How can I do it in a way that I like and that I feel is sustainable? That's why I really liked working with groups like Teesmade because in 17, shortly after, just because I felt that I was able to come in, put my fingerprints and DNA in it and really build sustainable businesses that were providing value to partners. I couldn't get behind anything where we were just signing for the sake of signing. That's not something that I would wanted to do or ever wanted to do. So you've always had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Either you're working at an early stage company, current TV, rewriting the rules of media forever, or helping to launch the cloud and big frame, Mm -hmm. or you're kind of acting as an independent operator, helping Jenna plan her career or thinking about what can Mm -hmm. Nickelodeon do to evolve in this changing Mm -hmm. media landscape. Mm -hmm. Has that always been just part of your DNA or what do you think set you on the path to becoming an entrepreneur? You know, what's really funny. If I could go back to young Jen, I would tell myself, take a business class, take one business class in college. I wish I would have because I took none. So Honestly, part of it was instinct, luck, creativity. I've always been a very creative person. I love logic, logic puzzles. So for me, if it's like, okay, if I have this on this side, this on this side, what can I do with it? That's just like instinct. But I recently took a finance class because I thought it's time. (laughs) It's time to go and take a class because for Univision now, I'm managing big P&Ls, major budgets, it impacts 
a big core business. So I want to know what I'm looking Good at. For you. And you know, there were some things that I was learning just about businesses and about different life cycles of businesses. And that's when I realized, you know what? And now I know what I like. I like the early launch life cycle of a business. I love figuring out, or, you know, if it's on another upswing, I really love figuring out what does this business look like? How do you build infrastructure? How do you build sustainability and systems that work? I think that's something that I really love to do. And that's honestly how I ended up at Univision. It yeah. sort of was like the best of both worlds. A friend, do you know Brendan? Brendan Gann? Yeah, of course. Yeah. He was leaving 17 and I told him, hey, I'm going to go to Europe. I actually just gotten engaged. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm going to go to Europe for a couple, like a month just to hang out. But when I'm back, I'm available. So if you know anyone... And he actually was uh, said, you know what? It's really funny. I have a friend that's working with Univision. You kind of would be perfect for that because you have so much. They want to do more with like the influencer space. If you're Latina, you should meet with them. So I met with them literally the day before I left to Europe and the day after I came back from Europe, I went to New York. I stopped by and met with Steve Beninoff, who's now at Facebook. And it just was this perfect scenario where they said, hey, we want to do something. We don't know what yet. And I was like, I am the right person. <laughs> Let me come in. And from day one, what I told Steve and the rest of the team was that do not acquire any. Do not I'm acquire anything. Because <laughs> what's about to happen is Univision is going to go on a buying spree and buy about you know 10 major oh brands in the next year or two. Oh my God. But we'll I, get to that. So yeah, sorry to I, interrupt. You know, but I said, give me a budget and I will add value to your core business. I know every smoke and mirror in this MSAM space because I've been in enough of them. It's not about scale for a business that's already established. That's such an of your game plan. Your game plan should be how do we open up to new audiences, reach maybe audiences on digital that you haven't reached before, bring new faces, develop talent. You do not need a billion views for that unless your sales team is prepared to sell a billion views. So from day one, Steve Beninov, who again has been another great mentor for me, he was so supportive and just, it felt like a collaboration and so it was sort of this really cool opportunity to come in with this entrepreneurial spirit, but have the backing of a massive media company. So yeah, I mean, at first started off as a consultant. And this time I said, this is where I belong. <laughs> I've now been here for three and a half years, which in this space is sort of long. But yeah, I mean, I love it. It's been really great. Fantastic. So yeah. I have so many questions. And I think where I want to start is at the time this was Flama, right? The Univision had kind of oh, yes. pioneered this internal brand. And the goal was to reach U.S. Hispanics with a sort of a digital publisher strategy, I guess is the way we would kind of talk about it now. Yeah. And I was curious about why Univision had elected to build an MCN internally from the ground up rather than go out and purchase one, which is what many other major mm -hmm. media companies at the time did, right? Disney, Perceiva, and Viacom invested in one. Yeah. So was that largely your vision and working with Steve, collaborating on setting that strategy? Definitely. And it's one of those things where... Steve and I sometimes would have these in-depth conversations of what our options were. There were different options at the table, different stages of the business. For example, at one point we were thinking, should we call this the Flama Network? As somebody who's worked in this space and for a long time, I thought, I know how the space works. I'm going to have to knock on a lot of doors and have to explain what Flama is. I'd rather go in and say, hi, I'm with Univision and boom, you're in the door. People know who you are. I'm skipping step one. So... <laughs> sustainability, efficiency, we have to call it Univision Creator Network. So from day one, I was a really big believer in you have this massive brand with incredible credibility and value. You have to use it. So that's when we sort of decided that 
they were separate businesses, by the way. They just knew from working with Flama that there was more to do with influencers. So they were interested in exploring other businesses. But, you know, there were times where we had those conversations about what would that look like if we rebranded this or what would branding look like? So from a very, very early stage, I said, I'm going to come in and I want it to be the Univision Creator Network. It has to be. But again, there were lots of overlaps with Flama because they had such great relationships with talent. But yeah, I think it's sort of one of those things where you just kind of have to make a decision. And that's how we went. Yeah. And I love the fact that you told them in the first interview, <laughs> don't buy anything. Because then, of course, what happens? What what did Univision end up buying over the next year? year and oh, half? are you talking about the Gawker acquisition? Right. Yeah. And the Onion and the Root? I mean, we acquired a lot. Five or yes. six kind of principal yes. large media brands yes. that were rooted in traditional publishing, but hadn't embraced video. Yeah. And so Univision is at the time kind of doing this internal evaluation. What do we do? How do we activate talent across this? Do we organize by verticals that align with these publishing yeah. assets that we just acquired? How do we help them make the transition to video where they can monetize theoretically at a much higher rate? What was that period like? Yeah. And you know, what's so funny, like it's really hard to, I think that was almost happening. That's a train that was ha- going simultaneously as we were. I actually didn't engage with that team as much just because we were Univision branded. But obviously, I've been in meetings with them. It, it makes sense on why Univision would do this because we want to reach more audiences, larger audiences that are on digital in particular. So there were brands available and it made sense and it opened us up maybe to newer audiences. It would make sense. But yeah, I just feel like that was a little bit of a different approach that maybe what my vision was, which was... How do I create efficient, quick, you know, because that's another thing. The great thing about working with influencers is from day one, my sort of pitch was you want inventory, right? Univision can sell spots and dots. The great thing about working with influencers is you can turn it on day one. We don't have to spend any money. In theory, we did because obviously when you work with influencers, you want to provide value and produce things with them and take them places and develop them. But I mean, compared to like a huge production, it's I think more efficient. And they have a built-in audience that you're not trying to sort of sell a new brand to. It's like they are engaging with them on a personal level. Yeah. So you found native ways to take what these digital influencers could offer, but also integrate that or incorporate it into the traditional Univision business, right? Yes. Activate the digital sales team for Univision to sell into this new inventory source or find ways to bring talent into radio or TV yes. with Univision's And honestly, assets. that's where a lot of the cost savings was. Because for being at other MCNs, the whole, my whole thought process was always, I want to bring something to the table day one. I want an influencer to know that I am personally invested, that the company is invested. So what are we going to put on the table? Sometimes it was money. Five, six years ago, it was money. That's what we could offer. It was a brand deal guarantee. So for Univision, it's great to be able to say, I'm going to get you on TV. Which is what every YouTuber (laughs) wanted from 2006 to 2012, probably still wanted. That was the end goal, right? For a lot of people on YouTube. Yeah. And I think it was pretty cool to say not many other networks, because at the time, Maker wasn't fully integrated into Disney digital networks. So I could say, and you're here in our studios, I can literally walk down the hall and we have the news director for LA right here. So it's pretty cool to say we can go knock on the door and figure out, do you want to be the morning show tomorrow morning? Let's ask. Many MCNs, influencer networks, influencer studios till this day cannot do that. The Univision Creator Network has also done a really good job of sticking to the core audience of Univision corporate, right? That you're very focused on U.S. Hispanic. At the time when you launched this Mm -hmm. burgeoning uh, new MCN in the business, 
I would think that a lot of the competition was coming from Me Too, certainly, mm-hmm. right? An early kind of Spanish language focus in Cien. Yeah. But also, you know, Style Hall was recruiting a lot of Spanish speaking creators, mm-hmm. maker, full screen. I'm sure there was competition for talent among some of the larger players as well. Yeah. What was it like and how did you differentiate yourself and say, we are really truly dedicated to this core US Hispanic audience? Yeah. I mean, and again, I think what our sort of competitive edge was being Univision. I mean, when you go to someone, you say, hey, you know that network that you grew up with, that you, your mom, your grandma, everyone grew up with, we want to work with you. We believe in you. We think you could be future talent, both on digital, but maybe traditionally. That opens up a lot of doors. And again, I think that's something that our competitors couldn't say. I think we also hit home from day one. We are focused on the U.S. Hispanic. And you would be surprised till this day, there's still a lot of confusion around what is a Hispanic influencer look like? Hey, we have these Hispanic influencers in Chile. When you say you have a U.S. Hispanic, that really opens the door to a lot. Everything from brand dollars to opportunities here in the U.S., bicultural opportunities. So from day one, I'm really all about focus, efficiency. We need to win somewhere and we're going to pick a lane and we're going to kill it. So where I picked was U.S. Hispanic because that's who we are as Univision. So we were laser focused. If you weren't a U.S.-based Hispanic influencer, it didn't make sense for us to work with you. So again, some of our competitors may have been focusing on global footprint, whereas for us, it was all about the U.S. Hispanic, which actually aligns perfectly well with our core business. Well, and in fact, Me Too did make a big push into Latin America and Mm -hmm. ultimately ended up pulling back. I think they Mm -hmm. struggled to service the creators in Argentina and Mm -hmm. Chile and many other parts of South America and then realized that the core advertisers they were speaking to in the U.S. were primarily interested in the U.S. Hispanic audience. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that U.S. Hispanics don't watch content from Latin America. They certainly do. But activating a local talent has a different meaning or impact for an advertiser. Yeah. And I think this opens up a whole other kind of worms of what does content the for the U.S. native Hispanic look like, right? That opens a whole other can of worms. Like, this, is it organic? Is it authentic to a first, second, third generation Hispanic? Because that's who we're looking at nowadays. It's not just the Spanish language content. Mm-hmm. It's bilingual, bicultural people like me, who I'm a third generation Hispanic. I love to watch Bravo TV and I love to listen to Jay Belvin. <laughs> you know, I live in these two worlds. How do we service and provide great entertainment experiences for this specific culture. And I think it's a moving target and it's a growing target. And I think this is, again, why Univision is making these big plays is because there's a lot to learn still. I was curious, what is the balance of the language composition? I'm pretty sure. I haven't looked recently. It's close to 50-50. I would imagine. I would guess it's 50-50 in in the amount of bilingual content that you're creating. Or at least when you're pushing something out, you're probably using bilingual metadata. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm all about experimenting. So I, some of our influencers will have English dominant content, but sprinkle in some Spanish words or phrases or words in their title. We're all about being true to who you are. And if you actually look at the U.S. Hispanic experience, it's actually what our lives are like. I'll go down the hall and I'll say hi to someone in Spanish and turn around and respond to somebody in English. And that's what our world looks like. So our content should reflect that. Yeah. Oh, and of course, there are a number of U.S. Hispanic influencers whose audience extends beyond not just U.S. Hispanics, right? But they're crossing over into mainstream media or they have other types of audiences who are interested in that content. For sure. And I think Lele Pons is a great example. She's somebody who I think you could say is a global influencer star, but she also resonates really well with the U.S. Hispanic. So what's coming next for Univision Creator Network? What does the future (laughs) hold? 
it's so funny. I because right before this started, you and I kind of were starting to talk about this, but I'm really interested. I think when we're looking at the space, I would say there's a little bit of a consolidation happening across the space. The great news is UCN, we were already sort of set up with a very efficient, sustainable business from day one. So we're in a really great position, but I still want to experiment. I want to try new things. I want to see how can we continue to develop talent, what new content can be developed. And this doesn't necessarily mean like creating IP and selling it to a distributor, which is another option, but just what type of content are we creating? Who are we creating it with? What does it look like? And I think one of the big things that we really want to focus on is music. Last year, there was this really big explosion of Latin music. Obviously, we had Despacito, Despacito right? breaking $5 billion on the YouTube charts. The, for the first most time. streamed video ever in the history of YouTube. Mi Gente with J Balvin, who ended up collaborating with Beyonce. We had Camila Cabello with Havana. And I think you're seeing this huge sort of merging. And by the way, I think it's reflecting our worlds. So, Are advertisers catching on to that? I know some of them have been very forward thinking. You have Procter & Gamble, who's a mm-hmm. massive Hispanic advertiser. Mm-hmm. Are other brands following suit and recognizing that this is an important audience that they need to get in front of? Definitely. I think that whenever we're talking strategy in terms of the type of content we want to create, what brands and advertisers are asking for, music is definitely a piece of that conversation. There's a lot of interest around that. Because again, the great thing about music is that it's something that transcends language. So again, it's sort of for the U.S. Hispanic, the perfect sort of stars aligning, right? So we, we just did launch what we're calling the UCN Music Residency, where we've identified three influencers who are also aspiring musical artists, put them in a house. And we're working with them on their content strategy, their brand development, but also bringing them in the studio and developing music with them. Fantastic. Super cool. Yeah. And it's sort of, I like to call it team 10 meets making the band. (laughs) We're merging it. However, not totally team 10. Not the brand safety concern. Not the brand safety concern team 10. But in terms of bringing a crew of young people together. Collaborating. Collaborating. We have three amazing young females who are excited passionate about music and ready to work. So I think it's going to be really fun. We're going to see three, their three personalities really evolve and grow. And we hope we see their audiences grow and maybe we'll even get a hit song while we're doing it. We'll see. Awesome. So let's close out with some rapid fire questions. Let's think about the future of the online video space. What are three predictions that you have coming Three predictions. I mean, I kind of already said that there's definitely consolidation happening. I think there was this huge bubble. And I think that bubble was sort of being inflated by that first round of, remember that $100 million that YouTube gave out? That was the first inflation. There was that. And then I'd say a couple of years ago, we had a lot of distribution companies saying they were going to be the next. The you know, wave and that didn't last. Yes. Uh-huh. So there's this huge demand for content and a lot of money being moved into the space. So I I would say the consolidation is happening and probably continue to happen. Number two, I really think there's this oversaturation of content, which maybe isn't bad, but there's just a lot of content out there. How do you find the good stuff, right? So I think it's figuring out better ways to find content. I, I guess sort of those two things are working against each other, right? And do you think that'll be algorithmically done, like we're seeing on Spotify or even Netflix, YouTube, or is it going to be more curation? 
You know, I change my mind on this every day. Like when I really think 10 to 15 to 20 years into the future, I think that there's going to be a bunch of brands that we trust and we're going to watch them on different screens. I don't know if it's TV. I don't know if it's mobile. I don't know if it's a computer screen. The point is there's going to be brands that we trust and we're going to watch their content on different screens of different sizes. That's my major prediction. That's like 2050. I mean, so that's why whenever there's this talk of is digital dying, is TV dying? No, but content will be king. You better make great stuff that people want to watch and they're going to follow you wherever you go. And then the third one for me, and again, this is a little bit more of like a biased point of view, but I think multicultural influencers content is going to become increasingly important. I mean, even if you just look at the population growth, um, the demand, Hispanics, for example, we over index when it comes to mobile use and video consumption. That's a huge opportunity. So I think you're going to start seeing content that looks different, stars different people, has different storytellers, different than what we're used to seeing, which I think is great. Thank God, right? (laughs) We've complained for years that the Oscars are too white and digital media is actually giving a voice to other perspectives, right? It's creating content from uh, these aspiring filmmakers or this next generation of talent that come from different backgrounds that actually represent more of what our population looks like. Yeah. Well, that's the goal. That's why I come to work every day. What's something that you believe that maybe the rest of the industry would think is totally crazy? I think you already mentioned this in your last podcast, but it's the micro-influencer. I agree with that. It's the same thing right now. It's a buzzword that I hear a lot of, how do we work with micro-influencers? And my question is, why do you want to work with a micro-influencer? What is your goal? I think ultimately it comes down to how do you create great branded content at scale with the tools that are available, the technical tools that we have. So a lot of times you need to manage this through like a dashboard. And I'm not sure if that's resulting in the quality content that we want to see. So what is the solution to that? How do we get higher quality content? I think that our advertisements are going to continue to get shorter, mm. which I don't know if that's actually probably everyone actually believes that. I don't know if that's an un- something nobody believes, but I think the evidence supports it, right? YouTube yeah. introduces a six second ad format after yeah. just what, three years before they had pioneered the 30 second for online video and making an ad skippable, yes. which was kind of unheard of at the time in, in a world of autoplay video that was non-skippable for the most part. So changing, rewriting the rules that we inherited from TV because they don't apply. They don't. And that's where my sort of perspective is quality branded content is going to become increasingly important. And I think we're going to have to think about how that happens because for me, the way I would love to approach it is how do we create great content and then find a way for a brand to have a voice in it rather than creating content for a brand. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And some brands have embraced it. Some have gotten really good at it, right? And Geico is an example I've always returned to. I love their videos and I'm excited to watch an ad and I'll share with my friends because they're funny or they're inspiring or uplifting. Tide is a good example too, or Procter & Gamble have a number of great ads. Two of my favorite examples that I always refer to is first and foremost, Breaking Bad. I love that the meeting started to take place at Denny's. Do you remember? Do you remember this? Oh, that's right. The main character started to take all his meetings at Denny's. And I'm like, who would have thought that Denny's would do an ad with a drug dealer taking his meetings at at the restaurant? That was the biggest show in America. So it It was a great show. But and Denny's was willing to take the risk because that could be risky on paper. Mm -hmm. Drug dealer will show up at Denny's (laughs) and have an ongoing thing. But I saw Denny's. I'm like, that is so cool. I see Denny's. That's my favorite example, and I also really love, this is a super girly one, only because I love my rom-coms. I love silly Lifetime 
rom-com movies. I could probably binge on eight hours worth of that on a Saturday night. But on Netflix, and by the way, this is this is what's so great about it. I'm not even sure if it was meant to be branded content, but I'm going to guess it was. But Christian Mingle, there is a Christian Mingle movie on Netflix, and it was awesome because it had the storyline of typical romance, girls, you know, looking for love, and she wasn't sure if she's really Christian enough to be on Christian Mingle, and I won't give away, guys, what happens. Okay. But I watched, and I was like, that is such an adorable movie, and if I were single, and look, maybe I would go on Christian Mingle, I don't know, but it was great, and just great storytelling, and had its brand all over it, obviously. So if you were starting a business in the online video space today, knowing everything you know from all these experiences, what would you do? <laughs> I think for me, I would, I'm always looking for what is sort of the differentiator, what's new. I don't want to do what everyone else is doing or already has done. I don't mean this as a buzzword, but I'm fascinated by blockchain. I have a little bit of roots when it comes to journalism, news. I think that's a huge opportunity there to figure out how to better find great quality news sources and content. I think blockchain could provide some help with that. I don't know. That to me is fascinating. How can you use blockchain to improve the digital news world? And at a time when journalistic integrity is in question, right, we need solutions to that. And publishers are struggling to monetize. And so the future of journalism is very uncertain right now. So how do we find a way to bring truth and accuracy? And it doesn't have to be completely unbiased, but it needs to be certainly objective reporting back into kind of the cultural conversation. And I think ultimately we're all looking for transparency. And I think that's really the goal of what blockchain is meant to do is create transparency. And so how do we utilize that system, because I love systems, to bring more transparency and understand more of the origins of news? I don't know. Very I know cool. this is sort of going, going <laughs> far. No, we'll look forward to that I... from, from Jen Perry one day. It's one awesome. Day. One day. So where can people find out more about you and more about the Univision Creator Network? Yeah, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's a good spot. Find me on LinkedIn, Jennifer Perry, or univisioncreators.com. Terrific. Well, this has been so much fun. (laughs) Thank you so much for uh, sharing your perspective and the time that you spent in these very early digital media companies, the time that you had as an entrepreneur and the talent manager helping to chart the course of these large traditional brands who are figuring out the new media landscape. It's been such a delight. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.